Hello, you're listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar Podcast. Good for you. I'm Lewis DeFreitz. I'm a third year PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here in Cambridge. And I'm very happy to be able to introduce you to yet another episode in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. And boy, do we have a good one for you today. Today's episode features a conversation with Professor Heather Ann Thompson, a professor of history and Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Professor Thompson is also this year's visiting Pitt Professor of American History and Institutions here at Cambridge, which means she'll be part of the Cambridge American History community for the rest of the year. Professor Thompson is a historian of the 20th century United States, working particularly on race, injustice and incarceration, and the centrality of these themes to the American experience. Her first book, Who's Detroit?, Politics, Labour and Race in a Modern American City was first published in 2001 and republished in 2017 by Cornell University Press. The book focuses on the persistence of social struggle and labour conflict in the Motor City during the decades of the supposed Great Society in the late 1960s and 1970s, arguing that racial injustice and class inequality intersected and continued to shape social relations and fermented unrest in the period. Her second book, Speaking Out, Activism and Protest in the 1960s and 1970s was published in 2009 and explored these themes further, consisting of an edited collection of primary readings relating to 21 activist movements and individuals that emerged during the period. Her third and most recent book, Blood in the Water, The Attica Uprising in 1971 and its Legacy, was published by Pantheon Books in 2017. It examines a revolt in an upstate New York prison by prisoners protesting against years of mistreatment and violent repression. After four days, the state police violently took back control of the prison, killing 43 prisoners, correctional officers and members of staff that they had taken hostage as part of the protest. Blood in the Water explores the minute details of the uprising and its long and complicated legacies, situating this particular episode of the prisoners' rights movements within a broader civil rights struggle and interrogating the rise of mass incarceration as part of a broader state apparatus of repression. It's a truly fantastic, powerful and I found accessible book, but you don't just have to take my word for it. Blood in the Water won both the Pulitzer Prize for History and the Bancroft Prize in American History and Diplomacy, among a host of other awards. We're very happy to have Professor Thompson in Cambridge with us this year and for her to join us today on the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. She spoke about a pre-circulated paper, Law and Logics, the Liberal State, the Carceral State, and the Limits of Justice and Inequality in Post-War America with Richard Sage, a second-year PhD student working on grassroots political activism and the global justice movement in the 1990s on Monday afternoon. So, Heather, thank you so much for joining us here today on the podcast. It's great to have you here. Um, we're going to talk a bit about your work, your current research project, and your experiences as an historian. Um, and I guess the place I'd like to start is your earlier work and how you came to write about mass incarceration. Um, your last book, Blood in the Water, describes the uprising at the Attica prison in 1971 and its aftermath. Um, and you've mentioned elsewhere that you initially approached the subject of that book as a civil rights historian rather than as an historian of prisons or justice policy. Um, and since you've argued persuasively that by focusing on criminalization, historians are able to uh, present the entire American past afresh and to provide new perspectives on familiar topics. 
When did you begin to see the analytical advantages of re-examining post-war American history through the lens of the carceral state? Well, that's a great question. Um, and thank you so much for having me here to talk about this. Um, I I have to confess that my I feel very, very embarrassed to say I was late to the realization that uh, that the carceral state or that the American justice system was so fundamental to the way that the United States unfolded, the way that it uh, operated and continues to operate. And so, indeed, when I began the book on this prison uprising, I was interested in it because it was a story about civil rights activism behind bars. And I hadn't really thought about the prison as an institution, or uh, most importantly, I had not quite put together that it was actually right after this uprising that the prison population in the United States skyrockets. Very, very specifically, in 1972 is when the uh, the prison numbers start to increase so dramatically. And so it was really kind of like a light bulb going off. I had to kind of stop and think about what is the connection? What does it mean to uh, have locked up so many people in our country over the course of so few decades, really four decades? And as a historian, that was a puzzle that once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it and uh, and really was persuaded that this was a whole area of history that historians needed to pay attention to. But of course, at the time, none of us were paying attention to it. So it felt a little bit like walking in the dark. Absolutely. So um, I guess your 2010 article, Why Mass Incarceration Matters, uh, Rethinking Crisis, Decline and Transformation in Postwar American History was kind of a call to uh, a call to bring that that issue Absolutely. to attention. Um, and in that article, you demonstrated how um, a focus on mass incarceration could shed light on a number of issues that have preoccupied historians of the neoliberal transition during the 1970s. So the declining influence of the labor movement, the turn to privatization and deregulation in public policy, um, the so-called backlash thesis, and the right turn in American electoral politics. Does the dramatic expansion of the carceral state during this period force historians to reconsider the idea that neoliberalism should be understood as an anti-governmental ideology in any kind of straightforward way? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think that actually what was so kind of remarkable about thinking about uh, incarceration, not just as a an event that happens, but actually as a, a, a complete punitive turn that changes everything in its wake. Uh, I was able to rethink, as you say, a lot of the questions that historians had really felt that we'd already settled. So, you know, why did cities decline? Well, for example, uh, you know, deindustrialization uh, or white flight or why had the labor movement declined? You know, globalization, deindustrialization. And it wasn't that those answers were incorrect, but I felt that we had really missed the impact, what the consequences of this uh, punitive turn in the criminal justice system had uh, the role that that had played in creating so much political transformation, decline, crisis. Uh, and yes, it, it you know fundamentally it made me question this idea that we were somehow retreating from the state or retreating from 
big government or retreating from the state as a pretty heavy-handed actor in the United States in the period when other historians were really seeing uh, a, a, a neoliberal turn. To me, I was really, it wasn't that I doubted so much the turn. It was really rethinking what that actually looked like behind the scenes. And, and so I think it was at first an opportunity to think about in my own areas of interest, how the carceral state, how seeing it changed those narratives. But I think ultimately I was inviting historians to uh, the proposition that uh, it actually changed the way we understand everything from, you know, changes in welfare policy to education policy, that that it really was that kind of uh, linchpin to understanding so much we had not yet seen, if you will, including neoliberalism. Absolutely. So it, it- it really complicates that kind of fairly straightforward narrative that we have about that period, maybe. Um, so also in that article, you um, you highlighted that um, the origins of mass uh, modern mass incarceration date not to the Nixon administration, but to the Johnson administration. Um, so with the passage of the Law Enforcement Assistance Act of 1965 and the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968. In one particularly compelling line, you argue that ultimately post-war liberals have been high-ranking generals in the nation's new war on crime, not its unhappy conscripts. Has this informed your current thinking about the limits of liberalism for achieving social justice? Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, I, I was really moved by the new literature on the rise of the right in America that really persuaded, I should say, that there was something about uh, the rise of conservatism, the, the the displacement of liberalism by conservatives. And then when I saw what in fact was going on with one of the most successful enterprises of conservatives, which was the the erection of prison, uh, prisons that could hold, you know, two and a half million people, for example, and a, a system that had about seven and a half million people in a, every single day in its grips, uh, I began to pick backwards and say, well, how did you how did you as a nation create this? And it turns out that everyone's hands were dirty, uh, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, albeit, you know, with different relationships in each in each camp towards the welfare state. Right. I would certainly say that they weren't all the same Absolutely. ideological camps, but it really was remarkable how they had shared this desire for the punitive turn they had they had both worked hard to erect it and to defend it and so if that was true then really what did we mean when we said rightward turn what did we mean when we said neoliberalism what did we mean when we said uh that 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 uh, liberalism was in retreat well maybe so or maybe liberalism had uh in the face of racial challenges uh, did what uh, just the same thing that conservatives did, which was to turn to the carceral state to protect its interests. I think that's a very um, revealing fa- phrase um, that everyone's hands are dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that. Um, in the paper that um, we'll be discussing later today, later today in the seminar, um, you make a larger argument about the foundations of the American state. Um, so you challenged the view that the American Revolution created this nation state that was unique in its commitment to equality and justice. Um, quite often historians have presented this idea and, and, and that departures from these ideals can be explained away with reference to 
situational or temporary contradictions or paradoxes of American democracy. Can you talk a little bit more about this argument? Perhaps it relates to what you've just said. Mm-hmm. Um, and also what uh, kind of talk about what prompted you to move away from a kind of a more specific fo- focus on the Attica uprising and, and kind of specific events. And what made you start to think about these longer term structural implications mm-hmm. of carcerality? Well, the first part of your question first, I, I think, um, you know, I had really been invested in locating and then understanding the origins of this turn towards mass incarceration, which was a very specific moment in time. Again, as I mentioned, really following uh, 1972, uh, a, a turn that we're still in the, the midst of. But it was very much confined to the last 45 years. And the more I began looking at the work coming out on the carceral state by lots of really fabulous young scholars on completely different periods of time, and the more I began to think about carcerality not just as about prisons, but actually about the three C's, criminalization, containment, or confinement, and control, Uh, then I began to see that this is actually a much more fundamental uh, structure that somehow relates to the American state itself. And so the piece that I'm workshopping today, it's still very new. I, I, you know, I haven't quite worked it all out yet, but I am moved now to really think about the much larger question, which is what is the relationship between the carceral state or carcerality in general and the American state. And by extension, uh, and this is why I think it's sort of so interesting to me, by extension, what is the relationship between carceral, carceral apparatuses and the liberal democratic state? So therefore, it's what we think about this matters. It matters to, you know, Great Britain. It matters to France. It matters to any Western democracy that promises its population um, this notion that uh, an expanded democracy and expanded resources will bring the country to its true character, its true nature. It will be at its most stable when it's at most redistributive, when it's most just. And I just kind of thought, but interestingly, at least in American history, at every moment when that possibility actually arose, what was the mechanism by which uh, stasis returned? What was the mechanism by which white people maintained their power and capital maintained its power? And it was always through the carceral state. So I'm still sorting it out, but I think it's it's important that we do because it has implications. It means, are we going to assume that we can fully, uh, for prison abolition, for example, if what I'm saying is true, well, can you abolish the carceral state within a liberal carceral, within a liberal democratic state? Maybe not. You know, can you, can you reform truly a liberal capitalist democratic state uh, as long as it is based in carcerality, or do you have to actually challenge the tenets of the state itself? So it's really, it's a quite radical argument, a little alarming, actually, <laughs> when you follow it through, right? Absolutely. They're really fundamental questions. And I think it's really exciting for us to have a chance to kind of talk through some of those in the seminar later. Um, and also I like the fact that you're also... Um, and you, you talk about this a little bit in the paper about how um, so these arguments do translate beyond the American case. That's mm-hmm. one particularly 
dramatic case because obviously the number of people incarcerated in the U.S. is so abnormally um, extreme relative to other countries. But uh, those kinds of debates also apply here in the U.K. and and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, the kind of wider conversation because obviously these issues um, have found their way into the public sphere. Um, and there is, we have seen a kind of growth in public conversation about racial justice and mass incarceration um, because of the contributions of people, particularly black women like um, activist scholar Angela Davis, filmmaker Ava DuVernay, and legal scholar Michelle Alexander. Um, mass incarceration also has a bearing on many contemporary issues from the detention of immigrants to the abuses of prolonged and indefinite solitary confinement in prisons. Um, to the rights of trans prisoners. Um, So, for example, um, I was really interested to see in a documentary recently about um, Stonewall veteran Miss Major Griffin Gracie, um, in which she discusses um, how she was radicalized during her time at Attica and how that has shaped her activism within the LGBT uh, community. Um, And you have also written about um, the appalling conditions and abuse that um, have led to violent outbreaks in America's prisons system in recent years. So, for example, at the Lee Correctional Institution in Southern California in 2018. Um, What role do you think historians have to play in this wider conversation? Mm, That's such a good question. Um, You know, just beginning a little bit at the beginning of the question as you posed it you know you noted all of these incredibly important black women that are at the forefront of this work on the carceral state and i think that's really worth taking a moment and hearing and really underscoring this is a this is an area of intellectual inquiry and activism that is deeply led by women uh, you know, really foundationally by women scholars, by women activists, and by women who consider themselves both. And so, um, and that has that has really been profound in terms of the questions that, you know, have been asked, um, the way in which we are very interested in power, but also are very interested in sort of social, uh, social history elements of this and um, community organizing and impacts on marginalized populations. And so, um, for myself, I write as a historian, but as you mentioned, I also write popularly for, you know, the New York Times or the Atlantic about uh, prisons right now, about the conditions inside of prisons, about the impact of heavy policing on particular communities. And, you know, I think that's because when you see this kind of work that is still unfolding in front of your eyes in such devastating ways, you have a scholarly obligation to make sense of it, to see its origins, to unpack it so that, you know, you know what it is. But I also, I think that it's equally true that you have an obligation as a citizen, once you understand something or once you see how it works, to share that knowledge and to really insist then that there is a there is a punchline. And the punchline is that that's what has been erected is unjust. Uh, unequal and needs to be um, remedied. And so in that sense, I don't personally see any, I'm asked this a lot, you know, is there a contradiction between being a historian and an activist? And to me, that is, I just almost don't understand the question, because it's not 
it's not a, a contradiction. I think it's, if anything, it's an obligation, Absolutely. which is to say that if you know something, you know, if you know that a house is about ready to burn to the ground and you don't alert the people inside to get out, then, then knowledge is just an abstraction. Um, and people's concern about it is that somehow your politics is going to shape your history. But in fact, it's the absolute reverse. It is the method of history. And our, I think, deep, uh, our methodology with, which has such deep integrity, which is that we start with the sources. And the sources take us where they take us. They take us places we didn't want to go. They, they, they show us things we didn't want to see. But it's from that evidence that we then draw conclusions. And I just feel strongly that once those conclusions seem obvious, we should at least share them for discussion, if not, uh, you know, if not being, even if we're not certain about them, right, that, that they're certainly worthy of discussion. Absolutely. I completely subscribe to that, that viewpoint myself. And that was um, very um, persuasively argued. Um, so... I guess what we're getting at here is the 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 huge diversity around this this conversation now, not just within the academy but but outside as well. Um, but returning to the the literature on mass incarceration, um, there's also been a kind of contribution from scholars across a wide range of disciplines and specialisms. Um, and so there was a, a special edition of the Journal of American History um, on the cast, on historians in the carceral state in June 2015, which I think you were uh, contributed to or involved with. I was the editor um, of it. And, ed- and edited it. Um, so um, I, looking across that um, that edition, you can see the breadth of scholarship and, and um, the, the wide range of this uh, emerging field. Um, so I wanted to ask you um, whether since that time there have been any particular growth areas um, or what you think might be the direction of future research. Yeah, well, it's so interesting because when we did that special issue of the Journal of Urban History, it felt a bit, uh, it was a little scary because it felt early in the process. We had, I had only written Why Mass Incarceration Matters in 2010. It was a mere what, three or four years later that we began to put together this special issue, which was a state of the field issue. And I think a lot of what you read in there was so exciting because it was really work that was fresh and new and people were really trying to feel their way to thinking about what is the carceral state. And we also did a special issue in the Journal of Urban History, uh, similarly pitched, which is kind of what is this, uh, what is this thing we're calling the carceral state? Now, the good news is that we weren't, as you say, the only discipline working on this. Meanwhile, there were uh, really important developments in critical prison studies, so more American culture kind of uh, inquiries into this. There were important sociological studies. There were important political science studies like by political scientist Marie Godshock and Naomi Murakawa and so we were all kind of in it and that meant that from the beginning this whole uh, school if you will has always been interdisciplinary Um, we've always leaned on each other within it and so interestingly what's happened is that the next frontier has very little to do with prisons 
It is now about, uh, you know, our orphanages, carceral spaces. Um, it's about policing. There's a huge explosion of literature on policing now. Um, there's, uh, you know, thinking about jails. One of my former students is doing a really exciting book on jails as kind of a an institution, but really as this, un, this liminal space where the carceral state gets made, but we don't know anything about it, right? Um, and then, and then for me though, there's a cost to this, which is we've now walked away from the prison. And I feel that we have to seriously look at prison conditions. Um, we don't know much about what happens behind those walls. So I personally still sit in that space, which is, I think prisons are important, um, and encourage us to really think about prison conditions. We're starting a project at Michigan, which is, a huge an effort to quantify and qualitatively describe the experience of criminalization and, and confinement in America. And my particular note of that is to really document prison conditions. Um, so, you know, it's exciting. I think it, you could, there's many niches that people can <laughs> occupy and do exciting work that needs doing in this area. That's fantastic. Um, so I'm afraid we're going to have to we haven't got long left, so. Um, but I hope our discussion so far has provided our listeners with some interesting insights into your current work and some of the networks that you've been involved in and um, this emerging field of historical research, which is very exciting. Um, by way of closing, we normally ask all of our interviewees the same three final questions. Um, so firstly, what book or article have you read in the last 12 months that inspired or challenged your approach? I well, boy, so many, but I think that that uh, one of the books that I read that was just really eye-opening to me to think about carcerality in a new way was by Jackie Wang. It's a book called Carceral Capitalism. And uh, it really kind of blew my mind. It helped me to really think about carcerality as a as an as a thing unto itself that intersects with capital, and so that helped me tremendously. That was a really important intervention. But but there have been others. I mean, that's what's exciting about this field. Every day, a new book is getting written that I have to reckon with. <laughs> it's a difficult question. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so, uh, secondly, uh, what is the most interesting place you've been for research? So that's easy. I just got back from uh, Finland and Norway, where I got oh. to do a pretty intensive look at the prisons. And so as someone who's interested in researching prison conditions, it was a mind-blowing uh, experience to talk to corrections officials, to talk to incarcerated people, to talk to uh, the entire legislative apparatus, you know, that that set this up and understand that, in fact, even within a liberal uh, democratic framework and even a liberal democratic capitalist framework, we can do things far more humanely uh, than we do them. And so that research trip was absolutely just just really important to the work I'm doing right now. That, that sounds fascinating. Um, so the the final question is, what is your favorite album? <laughs> <laughs> well, oh my gosh. Again, there's there's so many. I would say, let's see, my, my most current favorite is uh, by Black Atlas. It's their new album called Pain and Pleasure, and it's a great album. I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> I will have to check that out. I, I have to admit, I don't know that one, but I, right. will, I will give it a listen. You will find it. Well, thank you so much for, for chatting with me about thank this. You, thank you very much for joining us today, Heather. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast with Heather Ann Thompson and Richard Sage. We'll be back next week with another interview from another presenter at our seminar. 
In the meantime, let your friends know about what we're doing here. Give us a rating and a review wherever you do that type of thing. Follow us on Twitter at Comericanist and get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Cheers.